Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Colossians? Uh, I've been here for any length of time over the summer. You know that we have uh, started a series in the book of Colossians. We're going to be making our way through this. Uh, What I want to do first is I want to pray, and then I'm going to read the passage that we're going to be jumping into this morning. We'll be taking a look at chapter 1, go down from about verse 1 to verse 7, and then we'll get to work taking a look at what Paul has to speak to us in this little short passage of Scripture. So why don't you guys join me as we pray, and then we'll get to work. Uh, looking at what God's word has to speak to us. So, God, thank you that we have this opportunity of being able to join as a family. We're a family here. We're a family of all different ages. We're a family of all different social economic levels. We're a family of all sorts of different races. There's a lot of diversity in this room. But the one thing that unites us, rather than divides us, is Jesus. So God, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty and the love and the greatness of Jesus that has come down to restore and redeem all things. So God, help us to understand your word. Help us to see what you have to speak to us this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2, pick it up at verse 1, says this. For I want you to know how great a struggle that I have for you and for those in Laodicea And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mercy or mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one would delude you or deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in the spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in a faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That sounds like a really long run-on sentence, right? Because some of you are like, that was really long. I had no idea what he said. Join the club, all right? There's a lot to unpack right there, and we will hopefully get through that. But um, I want to start, first of all, by saying, like, what I think Paul is doing here is he's basically giving a map to the believers to whom he's writing to. In this case, he's writing to a group of believers living in a city called Colossae, which was in a region called the Lycus Valley. It was kind of uh, not too far away from a city called Laodicea. You may be familiar with the city of Laodicea because it actually appears in one of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And it was about 11 miles away. So this uh, group of churches in the area, Laodicea, Colossae, and then there's another city called Heriopolis Heriopolis, uh, in that particular region that Paul is writing to. But Paul is writing to this group of people basically saying, I'm concerned for you because you Gentiles, because that's who they were, meaning they were not Jews, not Jewish people, meaning they didn't know who Moses was, they didn't know what the Ten Commandments were, they weren't... Uh, trained in anything uh, Judaism. They weren't circumcised. These were just typical, run-of-the-mill, straight-up pagans that met Jesus. All right, so you can imagine these people who, for the most part, had never had any type of a context for gathering together uh, are now actually gathering together. So what you have are rich people sitting down next to the poor people, which never happened in the ancient world, and it rarely happens for the most part in today's world. Agree? How many uh, Hollywood stars you see sitting down with people on Skid Row? Not a lot. All right, how many of you who have vast amounts of wealth find ourselves sitting down with people who have not much? 
uh, what Paul also saw were people of total racial diversity sitting down, worshiping Jesus together. People of complete uh, other forms of economic division, all gathered together, worshiping Jesus. And Paul's saying, I'm concerned because even though you guys are witnessing a miracle in your midst, that there are people coming in that are trying to get you off track by deluding you or deceiving you away from who Jesus is. And as a result of moving away from who Jesus is, as a result, what's filling the vacuum or what will fill the vacuum are those fissures, those divisions all over again, because that's what happens. So Paul's like, I want to make sure, ensure that you guys are on track, staying focused on Jesus. So what Paul's going to do, for the most part, is kind of in so many ways, give these people a map. Last night, uh, we had kind of movie night, and usually with me and my daughters, we sit down, we're always like, okay, what movie are we going to watch? Because Netflix has nothing good. And uh, we're like, all right, what you know, movie can we watch again on Netflix? We're like, you know, let's find a good Disney movie, all right? So we... For some reason, I don't know, one of my daughters was like, let's watch Atlantis, right? Which is an old Disney cartoon. Anybody watch that? All right, like both of you. The rest of you guys are not, not bold enough to admit it. But um, anyways, a great movie, old movie. Like Michael J. Fox is the main voice in there. And so if you know anything about the story, you know that it's actually about a guy, a main character, who finds a map or who's really you know, obsessed with trying to find a map. And though once he finds the map, he's found sort of the... The, the, the means, the way to actually get to Atlantis, and Atlantis is not in and of itself uh, the, the main thing. It's, there's a power source, at least in the story, uh, a power source that these people want to get. So in a lot of ways, what Paul is saying is that here's a map. The treasure where the X marks the spot is Jesus, but at the same time, along the way on this map are dangers. There are areas that you, if you're not careful, if you find yourself in them, you will encounter struggles and hardships that will try to get you off track of locating, of finding, of discovering, of living out the treasure. And what I want to do this morning is I want to basically look at three things in some ways this map that Paul's about to point out. So first of all, we'll take a look at the treasure. So obviously we already know who the treasure is. It's no mystery. It's Jesus. Paul says it was a mystery at one point. We'll look at that in a moment. Second, we'll take a look at the dangers that abound. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at the path forward because Paul's going to finish in summary in verses 6 and 7, pointing out some of the actual the, the path that we live on, the path that we follow, the path that we continue to follow in order to maintain, to walk in the life, to walk in this path that God calls us to walk in. So first of all, let's take a look at the treasure that is Christ. So look at verses 2 and 3 again. First, before that, why don't we jump back to verse 1. Again, we'll reiterate, Paul says, For I want you to know what a great struggle that I have for you. The word struggle is the word agonize. We get the word agonize from. Agonizo. It's the idea of just Paul is, is concerned, greatly concerned uh, over the condition of where these people, if they're not careful, they can slip into. He wants to ensure that their focus is on Jesus. This is a big deal. It's actually a big deal even in today's modern-day church. I was reading an article, maybe some of you guys had read it this past week, but this lady was basically uh, uh, pointing out as to why she believes that a lot of millennials, you know, people that are born within the millennium, are actually leaving the present-day church and actually kind of finding their way or migrating into sort of more what they call higher forms of church, uh, like high Lutheranism or high uh, Episcopalianism or uh, uh, high forms of Catholicism or Orthodoxy and so on and so forth. And really, in short, kind of the summarizing statement in the article that she had written was that, for the most part, uh, many modern churches today 
uh, have a lot of like really cool factor. They look really hip. Everything's great. Pastor's really, you know, hip or the message is really hip and down to earth. There's a lot of like uh, modern references and so on and so forth to trying to be very relevant. But at the end of the day, what is devoid in the actual substance of the service is Jesus. You get a lot of the pastor. You get a lot of personality. You get a lot of really cool music. Now, let me put it this way. If you, you know, been around here for any amount of time, we like music. There's nothing wrong with music. And we don't have any problem with using beauty and aesthetics. The problem is, is when everything becomes focused on those things, when everything is focused on a personality or everything is focused on a form of music or everything is focused upon certain aesthetics, and at the end of the day, what you end up missing out or losing is Jesus. So the point of the matter that we really have to focus on is that, and what Paul's concerned about, is that Jesus is somehow being lost in the mix. And this is really what Paul's concerned, why he's agonizing over this. And I think, honestly, if we have the heart of God, or even, to some degree, share Paul's desire, Paul's concern, we should be concerned about this as well, and asking the question, is Jesus the center of what we do? Is he the center of our lives? If you lead a small group, is Jesus part of your small group? If you claim to hang out with a bunch of guys and do accountability, is Jesus the center of your accountability? Or is it just commiseration on the fact that you lost? Where's Jesus? Is Jesus the part of our lives? Paul is saying, I'm very concerned, I'm agonizing over the fact that somehow you're being deluded or being deceived into variant forms of losing sight of Jesus. So Paul's going to begin to say now, verses 2 to 3, he says, I hope that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach to the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what Paul's basically saying is this, is that Jesus is, in and of himself, a treasure, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In some ways, what Paul is doing is he's sort of personalizing wisdom. If you know anything about Greek thought, which the Colossian church would have been steeped in Greek society and culture, which means the education that they, these people would have received would have been more of like a classical education, what we call a classical education today, which would have been uh, Greek. They would have been steeped in the Greek philosophers. They would have known Plato and Aristotle and some of the other poets and the writers back of the day. In other words, philosophy means love of wisdom. And what Paul is saying is that Christ is the treasure of all wisdom. In other words, philosophy, wisdom, is not just some sort of ideal or concept that's out there that we've got to somehow figure out ways to bring it down into our understanding and then into our lives. But Christ is the embodiment, the personification of wisdom. And miracle of all miracles is he doesn't like wait up there for us to go and ascend to him. Miracle of all miracles is that he actually descends to us. He comes down to us. This is what Paul's saying. He is a treasure to be valued, to be loved, to understand who he is. He's a person. He's not just simply a concept, not just simply an idea, not just simply an instruction. This is what makes Christianity unique and distinct, is that Christianity is not about a morality or not about an ethic to be memorized or not about rules and regulations and restrictions to somehow apply to our lives. It may have all of those things. But at the end of the day, Christianity is about a person. It's about God coming to us. 
God reconciling with rebels. This is what Paul basically said in chapter 1, is that we were alienated from God because of our sinful actions and because of our sinful thinking. And yet God, by grace, came and reconciled with us. So Christianity, what Paul is saying and establishing and trying to anchor is that, yes, it's about a treasure, but that treasure is not just some sort of abstract concept. That treasure is, in reality, a person. It's Jesus. It's the God-man. It's God come in the flesh to rescue us. So this is what Paul's trying to say. He's saying, I'm so agonizing over you guys because what I'm concerned about is that Jesus has come to you guys and he's made himself known and made himself aware so I want to do something real quick, and I want to tie what Paul is saying here into the rest of the storyline of the Bible. And why this is significant, why this is important, cannot be understated. I think there's a tendency for us to pick up various books in the Bible and just read them. And when we read books of the Bible, and we divorce them from the, what we would call maybe the meta-narrative, the main overriding story from Genesis to Revelation, when we divorce books of the Bible, from the main meta-narrative, what we're left with is a bunch of rules and regulations to try to follow. Have you brought up in that Christianity? You read a particular book in the Bible, and it says, oh, you know, don't be unequally yoked. So here's a new rule for you. Stop dating non-Christians. You're like, why? Well, the Bible says, don't do it. Well, why? Why does God say that? Like, it doesn't matter. Just do it. So what you're left with is a bunch of regulations, do's and don'ts, no matter how they may adjust or configure your morality. But you're completely in the dark as to what the meta-narrative, the storyline, why? What is God up to? What is God doing? Here's what Paul wants for us to understand. Some of the reasons why in chapter 1 Paul says, really what has happened is that God has come down in Jesus, and he describes it this way. This is the riches of his glory. And he would even put it this way. He says, in Christ is the hope of glory. The word glory is, a, is another way of basically describing something of substance. It's substantial as opposed to weightless. Uh, as opposed to uh, being something that has no value. And Paul is saying is that in Christ, Jesus, he, he is all substance, all value, all weightiness. And in him, comes the beautification of all things. And this should resonate with us because at the end of the day, all of us, we don't like things that are not beautiful. We revel in, we glory in, we love things that are beautiful. That's why we love sunsets. That's why the concept of like a birth of a child is like, even though for some of my, you know, especially dudes, you're like, God, gross. But the reality is like, if, if you're the dad, it's, Still, you're like unbelievably moved by the reality of a baby coming into the world. The point of the matter is is that we are moved by beauty. And when we look at our lives and we see them not beautiful, or we see our lives broken and destroyed or fractured, we are constantly moving from a level of brokenness into a place of put-togetherness, or moving from a place of ugliness to a place of beauty. And we'll do that. We'll move along those lines no matter what. Even if God's not going to help us, that's really what the world's trying to do. The world, for the most part, is a system that says, yes, your life is broken. Yes, the system is broken. But let's figure out a way by our own strength, own my own power, to figure out a way to make it beautiful. We don't need God. We can do it ourselves. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the source of making all things glorious. He's the hope of that. So it all starts, obviously, in the garden. 
You can think of four different ways to identify the storyline. Some have kind of identified it this way. The idea of uh, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Take, first of all, creation. The idea that God created all things. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and all of the cosmos. All things were good. All things were rhythmic. All things were in order. There's shalom. God spoke over all creation. He said, this is really good. So God's declaration, God's idea, God's opinion, if you would, over all creation is that all things are resonant and beautiful and in harmony and good. There's no deception. There's no need to somehow walk with a swagger, to somehow earn someone else's approval. There was no need for any of that. Because Adam and Eve had all the approval of God. They were in relationship with him. But enter in the fall. The fall was through this temptation, which at the heart of it, most of us would look at it and say, well, the fall was all about you know, Adam and Eve partaking in the fruit, and therefore they sinned. It was all of that, and that was true. But I would suggest that really what led to the fruit of disobedience was a root of disbelief. In other words, before the action, you could call that the fruit, the action of partaking of the fruit was the root of Eve disbelieving God's goodness. You know that's where it all began? Eve actually disbelieved. She questioned. She punted. She wasn't aware. She did not believe, did not trust the fact that God must be good. And her questioning God, whether or not God is good, whether or not God really truly loves me, whether or not God truly cares for me, actually led her to take matters into her own hands. In that case, was to partake of fruit, which led to what God says would be death. And this is exactly what we see basically transpire and move forth over all creation. That uh, sin or disbelief really was this root which led to sin, which was this fruit, which led to a disintegration, which led ultimately and finally to a death. And the disintegration of relationship was not just simply between Adam and Eve and God. It was, because the very next thing you read is that they went and they hid themselves. They made out for themselves uh, fig leaves to cover themselves. And God basically said, why? What are you guys doing? They said, well, we're naked. He says, why? Who told you you're naked? And what happened was, this is a basic way of trying to describe that they have entered into shame. Sin, if you guys know, leads to shame. You are ashamed of what you did. That's what sin it brings about. It's a sense of, now I got to cover up. So the older you get, the way that we cover up our toolbox gets a little bit bigger, right? I mean, when you're like two years old and you lie, your toolbox is really small, right? The older you get, the better you get at being able to cover up your tracks, which is another way of basically saying, I need another fig leaf to cover up my shame. So we get better at it. I mean, if you're like a hitman, a mafia dude, like you just, you knock out some people to cover up your tracks, to lie. That's a fig leaf. But the point of the matter is, is that it leads to a disintegration, disintegration relation between God and man, but also disintegration in this particular case between Adam and Eve, husband and wife, socially, on a relational level. They were fractured. Their relationship was broken because God comes to Eve and says, what happened? And she, I'm sorry, God comes to Adam and asks, asks him what happened. And he basically defers to Eve, says it's her fault. He literally turns his back on his own wife, who prior to the sin, they were in union with each other. They loved each other. Adam would have defended her, protected her, fought for her. But now Adam's literally turning his back on his own flesh and blood. 
but it also led, because Eve then says, well, it was a snake, the serpent, that lied to me. So in other words, that's another theological way of basically saying, also, at the end of the day, there was a fracturing, a breakdown of disintegration between mankind and its environment. The earth, the world in which we live in, the animal kingdom, the earth in which we live in. It's one of the reasons why God, by the way, actually says, right after this, right after the post-fall, he says to them, he says, from the dust you came, back to the dust you shall return. This is God's way of saying, I called you, I gifted you, I enabled you, I equipped you, I commissioned you to cultivate the earth. That means to take the raw clay, the raw soil in your hands, to move it, to manipulate it, to make gardens, to form bricks, to build lots of bricks on top of each other, which build buildings, to build cities, which come from lots of buildings. To populate that, have lots of babies, enjoy your wife. I'm going to give you a sex drive that will feel amazing. To help you along the path, life will be full of joy. And as a result, their environment broke. And God was basically saying, at the end of the day, the earth will get the last laugh. Because even though you were to rule over the dirt of the earth, it will rule over you and you will be buried in it. You'll die. From dirt, from earth you came, to earth you shall return. But God promised, Genesis chapter 3, that he would bring about a redemption. And the redemption will ultimately come through the seed of the woman. And there's two different ways you can look at redemption that came through. One is God ultimately would come to Abraham through Abraham. God made a promise, I want to bless you. Through you will bring blessing to all the earth. Which ultimately through Abraham's lineage would come a nation uh, through this guy by the name of Jacob would come the tribe of Israel. Israel was to be God's chosen nation. God even described Israel as being my son. You are to bear my name. You are to bring my name into the world so that when people see you as a nation responding to me as your father, as your God, as your redeemer, all of the nations of the earth will be amazed by the grace that I shower upon you. In other words, Israel, you will be like a light set upon a hilltop, demonstrating, shining forth the greatness of God to all the world. All nations who see you will see me. Did Israel do a good job? No. Israel ended up becoming just like every other nation. Rather than loving God, serving God, honoring God, Israel became just like every other nation. As a result of that, God brought judgment upon Israel. And that judgment came in the form of exile. God says, I gave you this land. And instead of stewarding the land, instead of using the land, instead of tilling the land in a way that would bring honor to me, bring glory to my name, bring blessing to all other nations around you, I'm going to take the land away from you. Some people might think that's really unjust of God to do that. But the reality is, the land belongs to God in the first place. God gave the land over to Israel to say, use this as a means to bring blessing. Instead, you use it as a means to take advantage of the poor and taking the land away from you. So God says, I'm going to send you off in exile. If you're a good parent and your kid has like a Lego toy and he starts whacking a younger kid, younger sister, younger sibling on the head with your Legos that you bought, right, Christmas, and you're like, no, stop hitting Junior on the head with your Legos. And they keep doing that. Like you as a good parent probably should at some point end up taking the Legos away from kid number A. All right, just, just out of love, because you not only love 
your firstborn, but you also love the one that's getting whacked on the head with Legos. And so what you do is you take away, you actually send the child into exile. It might be in the form of like, you know, quiet time or sitting down or whatever you want to call it, however you want to discipline your kid. But the idea is there is some form of exile that comes into play because that there, 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 there was basically a squandering of the goods. And so God sent Israel into exile. But what God did is he never gave up on the plan of redemption. And instead, in the right time, God sent forth his son, born of Israel. Jesus comes into the world. He's a Jew. He's raised as a Jew. Jesus' first steps in ministry basically comes. And on the scene, he basically comes to the Jordan uh, River. He gets baptized. Why was he baptized? Because his way of basically saying, look, just like Israel came from the wilderness into the promised land, through the Jordan, so must I. Got to do it. Israel did it, I will do it. After that, Jesus goes out and he finds how many people to be his apostles? 12. Why not like 40? Why not 25? Why 12? Because what Jesus was basically saying is I'm reinstituting, reinstating Israel around myself. Israel as a nation has failed and they've been in exile. But I'm reinstituting, reinstating. God has never dropped the promise to bring blessing on the entire planet. God has never stopped. God has never given up on that promise. God will fulfill every last promise. And the way that God will fulfill this is through his Jewish people. But in this case, because the Jewish people failed, God will ultimately fulfill it through one that doesn't fail, Jesus. He comes and he's honoring God in every way, shape, and form, all the way to the point of death on the cross. Jesus basically says, look, Israel's supposed to shine brightly as a light. Israel didn't shine brightly as a light. I'm the light of the world. Israel's supposed to walk in God's truth, honor God's word, they fail. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Israel is supposed to be salt of the earth, but instead, Israel, unfortunately, lost its salt. I am the one who will bring preservation. Jesus was pointing his followers to saying, look, God has not given up on redemption. The hope of redemption lay within me. But then ultimately what takes place is that Jesus gets put to trial for things he never even did. We know the story. Ultimately, he's put to death. But after death, uh, I'm sorry, he gets put into the grave. So Jesus gets put where? Underground. The grave wins. The dirt wins. So it appears, at least for three days. But Jesus rises again. Why? Because this is God's way of saying his son, even though he was perfect and innocent, he bore the sin of many bore the sin of Israel, bore the sin of all the world upon himself, and he was judged. He went into exile, even though he was perfect. He bore the sin of many. Therefore, because he was actually himself innocent, the grave had no claim to him. So he rose again victoriously in through that act, basically declaring God was starting a new humanity through his son. And what does that new humanity look like? It looks like people that have risen again from death to life. It looks like people who give themselves away sacrificially loving their enemies. It looks like people who are smacked on one cheek, giving their other cheek to be smacked. It looks like people giving their lives away generously and indiscriminately. Just like Jesus. This new humanity. This was God's way. And this is what Paul says. This is why Paul is so emphatic on this. His whole point is that Jesus himself is that treasure. He is the hope 
of glory. Or he is the hope of beautification. This is why Paul would say there's no form, no hope of beautification, no hope of weightiness of glory outside of Jesus. Because outside of Jesus, all we're left with is yours and mine best intentions. And where has that gotten us so far in thousands of years of history? Not very far. We haven't advanced that much. Yeah, we got iPhones. Yes, we figured out how to split atoms. And I would definitely say that the medicine that we have today is far better than it was 200 years ago. And I would definitely take a doctor who's in the more modern era than I, and I would take a doctor 300 years ago. All right? The point of the matter is, is that we have not figured out yet how to live together in peace. How to break down racial walls. How to break down things which divide us. But what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying through Jesus, this has happened. Jesus has begun this good work. And that when the world sees this Colossian church, which were formerly outsiders, which is another way of saying Gentiles, which was formerly filled with alienated people who had nothing to do with the grace and the kindness and the love and the familyhood of God, that when the world looks at this group of people, rich and poor, sitting side by side next to people that are black and white and red and whatever other colors around there, other people that are both slave and free, sitting together, loving each other, giving the shirt off their back to each other. The world takes notice and wonders, what is this? Paul's saying, I'll tell you what this is. This is a trailer of what life is to come when King Jesus will come back and rule and reign in full form. This is a trailer. This is a snapshot. This is an hors d'oeuvre of the banquet that's to come. And it's really good. This is one of the reasons why, going back to what I said earlier, this is why Paul points out certain do's and don'ts. It's not just simply so that we have this laundry list of things to try to figure out how to do as a Christian. Paul is saying the reason why I'm so concerned about you guys losing sight of Jesus being deceived and falling off the track is because at some point it's like you are having your lives repositioned rather than being a mirror that reflects the image of God into the world around you. That repositioning, that shattering will actually cause people in the world to look at you as a church and not see God anymore. Paul says, I want everything you do to be positioned in such a way that God is so visibly, tangibly seen and sensed so that when anybody comes in your presence, they cannot help but see the weightiness. What Paul says, the hope of glory to come. Does that make sense? This is the idea that Paul's trying to convey. That Jesus in and of himself is that treasure. The second thing that I want to take a look at, which actually we will unpack more so next week, are the dangers that abound. On any great trip, and especially even in the movie that I saw the other day or last night, are lots of dangers. All right? Paul's saying the same way is true for those who follow Jesus, those who see Jesus as a treasure. There's lots of dangers. There's dangers in our own heart. There's dangers externally. There's dangers of people coming around and trying to convince us of another alternative storyline. Or people that come to us and tell us, ah, Jesus is great, but he's not the great test. Jesus is the great teacher, but he's not God. What Paul is saying is that we've got to be vigilant and careful to make sure that we don't somehow sell out or give into alternative versions of the story. Because when we do, we begin to fracture. We break apart. 
rather than be brought together, which is what the gospel is doing. It's uniting. It's bringing together people who were once divorced, people who were once alienated, people who would once separate. And you guys know this. Have you ever sat around or talked with somebody? And in the beginning stages of your heart, in your mind, you're thinking, I can't share this because if I share this, people will separate from me. They will alienate from me. They will move away from me rather than move towards me. But if you, in that moment, in that time of crisis, begun to share your heart, yeah, I was involved in porn. And rather than having someone alienate you or look at you crazy, they actually come to you, embrace you, and like, look, I've been through the same thing. You know what helped me was Jesus. I want to help you. When you discover people actually embracing you rather than alienating themselves from you or pushing you away, you've entered into what Paul is saying, this precursor, this glimpse, this snapshot of the glory that's to come. Paul says, this is what's happening in God's families. People are coming together, uniting around Jesus. Because this is what Jesus ultimately did for us. So there's dangers, Paul says, that abound. We've got to be aware of those things. Like I said, we'll look at that more next week. I want to move on to the last point. We'll be done. It's really the path forward. Paul's going to really kind of give sort of a climactic verse, pointing out, kind of the carving out, I would even say probably the rest of the great book of Colossians is that in some way, shape, or form going to kind of move back to this main particular point. So here's what Paul is going to say in verse 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I want to pause real quick and just emphasize something. And I think it's easy for us, uh, at, you know, we can read certain passages and sometimes read over them really quickly where we don't really feel the effect of them. Um, here's what Paul says. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. The word Christ uh, we can use in the modern language, king. Now, again, I realize, you know, for us in modern society, uh, we don't really have much of a context for kings. Um, if you live in England, you know, in some sort of other commonwealth that might actually have kings or kingdoms, uh, it might be a little bit more easy to relate to this. But in our culture, you know, if you're familiar, obviously, with anything about American history, we don't really take too fondly to kings and uh, monarchs and so on and so forth. Um, if you didn't know that, you're like, I didn't know that. Like, um, first grade, you know, remember... Um, anyways, the, the idea is that the concept of a king is something in a lot of ways that may be foreign to us, but what Paul is saying is that Jesus is a king. He's a monarch. But he's not like Caesar. He has a kingdom, and his kingdom is not limited to the way Caesar's is. That God's kingdom, his domain, that's what a kingdom is, his domain by which he rules and where he rules or the extent of his rule is not just simply limited to a little space, a property, along the Mediterranean sea coast, like Israel. That's the way, for the most part, a lot of ways some of the Jews could have come to think, was that God's home, God's zone, God's domain is this little area on this coastline along the Mediterranean Sea. There are Americans that tend to think, you know where God lives? It's in America. It's the land of the free. God bless America. Because we are God's anointed special people. But the reality of what Paul is saying is, no, 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 that's Far too limiting to the domain of this king. This king isn't limited to an area along the Mediterranean. This king isn't limited to you know, the area of the Americas. This king's domain is everywhere, both seen and unseen, both tangible and intangible. This is how far the extent of this kingdom's, this king's domain extends. What Paul is saying is that he is a king, that Jesus is a king. But he also says that Christ Jesus is my Lord. 
And that word Lord is a Greek word that basically means master. I'm a subordinate. I'm a slave. I realize that terminology in a lot of ways is very uh, frustrating in American culture because of our history with slavery. And oftentimes I think what's easy is for us to kind of become a little bit um, embarrassed about the language and terminology in the Bible and just sort of downplay it. But we can't downplay it because these are the idioms, these are the metaphors that are used. I think what we need to do is somehow maybe remove it or at least strip the husk off of Americanism and at least somehow re-steep it into the Bible. And the concept I think it needs to arise or emerge from this is that God is a king and his domain is vast and wide and broad and huge, but he's also Lord, meaning he's good, he loves. And the concept of submitting myself to anybody freaks us out. Look, as an American, we thrive. It's almost like independence is a virtue that we deserve. I mean, we even have a day to celebrate our independence. And what I'm saying in a lot of ways is that for the most part, that is in and of itself the concept the idea, the hope, the trust, the confidence that we place in our own independence is for the most part what's killing us because we're not becoming more free by leveraging our lives from our independence. We're actually becoming more slaves because we are actually becoming enslaved to the wrong things. And what Paul is saying is that Christ Jesus is a king, vast domain kingdom but he's also a very good lord he's a lord that if you should you devote yourself to him share with him the deepest darkest most defiling secrets you have this king will not add to your defilement this king will bear your defilement this king will bear your sin he will bear you up he will protect you he will shelter you he will shield you that's what paul's saying so he says in short and finished He says, for though I am absent, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7, he says, I hope that you would be rooted and grounded and established. He used two metaphors, one of a tree, one of a building, establishing him by faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul is saying, I want you guys in the same way that you trusted Jesus to walk with Jesus. What Paul is saying is that, and again, we can give the classic evangelical, modern-day fundamentalist answer to how are we saved? Well, by faith we're saved. Right? By faith through grace. By grace we're saved through faith. We trust in God. That's how we receive it, by faith. What Paul is saying, if you want to take that same idea, he's saying it's also by faith that we walk. I was kind of brought up with this idea that the gospel, the concept of the gospel, was sort of this like little last five to ten minutes addition added to a sermon just preceding the altar call. That's exclusively designed for the non-believer. So in other words, this idea of like, okay, if you're not a believer, listen up. I'm going to preach the gospel to you right now. That means the rest of you, you know, just pray, do whatever you want to do, tune out. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's not pertinent to you. I've come to realize that that idea is completely not rooted or grounded in the scripture. The reality is that the gospel is the only thing both sinner and saint needs. It's what Paul comes to preach. 
Paul's saying, look, even before you were a Christian, even before you were converted or transformed, you needed the gospel. But now that you are converted, now that you are transformed, now that you are a believer, a Christian following Jesus, you need the gospel to continue to keep fueling your life. Gospel isn't something that you just need before you're a Christian to get saved. The gospel is something we need as a Christian to walk, to demonstrate, to point out in our day-to-day walk that we are saved. It reminds us, it revitalizes, it shows us the grace, the kindness of God and who he is and what he's done for us. And that restokes the fires of our heart, relights the affections of our heart back to God, loving God, serving God and responding to him. This is what Paul is saying. So in the same way that you are saved by faith, trusting in the gospel that is revealed to you, this is how you continue to walk. This is how you will continue to be rooted and built up and established in the gospel. I'm going to say something that might shock or surprise some of you, but the reality is, is that temptation is more, has actually more to do with our belief than with our behavior. We typically think of temptation to sin as being strictly behavioral. I want to put it to you this way. Sin has more to do with the fruit of the root which is either belief in the gospel or disbelief in the gospel. So it doesn't matter what bait you have on your hook. The bait might be like uh, lust or greed or envy or self-pity or defensiveness or entitlement or revenge or this, excessive, this, asset, this constant need to feel like you have to be right or constantly feel like you need to win. And what the gospel does is it basically says you don't need that. And the reason why we keep needing to live feeling these things, grabbing for these things, holding on to these things, is because we fear that if we don't do it, then we will do without. We will lack affirmation. We will not be found valuable. Someone will not love us. We will not be accepted by anybody. We will not be loved. So what we do is it starts with what we believe in the gospel and then moves into the actions of how we respond. For example, Eve in the garden, began with disbelief that God truly loved her and led to her saying, I don't know as to whether or not God truly has my best interest in mind, and I question that, so therefore, someone needs to look out for me. Since God is not, or I disbelieve that he is, I will grab. But the same is true for every single one of us in all sorts of different ways in our lives. So, for example, if you think of it this way, the bait that we have, really, the only reason that we take this bait is really because we believe that at some point in our hearts it will satisfy this deep hunger for meaning, for freedom, to be validated, to have respect, to be empowered, to have a sense of identity, to be given a sense of worth. We really believe that by grabbing this thing, by pursuing this person, by holding on to this ideal, that one of those areas or another one that's not listed will somehow be satisfied in that. And it's rooted in a disbelief in the heart of the gospel that says, in Christ are hidden the treasures of all wisdom, all knowledge, all grace, all acceptance. And if you think of it this way, every single attempt to grab a hold of or lay a hold of something there's a cost involved. So for example, if your 
desire, if you have this idea in your heart that really what you need more than anything is to have security, you need to be affirmed, you might not actually spend money to get that, but you, you will end up paying something. So you might pay for it in the form of dignity. So let's say, for example, you're a woman. And the number one desire that you have in your heart is to be affirmed. You want the affir- affirmation from a male to love you, to honor you, to hold you, to shelter you, to cradle you in his arms. And in your mind, you think, that's what I want more than anything. You will pay a price to get that. You may pay the price of dignity. You may actually pay the price of your own sexuality, somehow giving that up, and even allowing yourself to be made undignified, being made soiled, for the fact, for the price of being able to obtain some sense or semblance of security. Or if you're a dude, and in your mind you think, I need power. Because power makes me feel significant. When I have power, I feel affirmed. When I have power, I feel really good. When I have power, I feel in control. For a man, it may be he will do anything he can to get power. So he actually may step on people or abuse people or yell at people or be rude to people to somehow secure his position or his posture of power. So for him, he's paying a valuable price of alienating himself from any form of relationship because at the end of the day, people look at you and think you're an idiot. You're a jerk. Price will be paid and you will get some semblance of what you think you need to make life full of meaning. All of that is fruit that stems from a root that says, I do not believe that God gives me significance. I do not believe that God is a treasure. I do not believe that God will give me security. I do not believe that God in God and God alone in Christ alone is my assurance of hope, of life, satisfaction, of peace. And therefore we turn to alternatives. Cheap alternatives. That promise much, deliver little, and often end up leaving us feeling defiled and broken and shattered. And Paul says, I'm so concerned for you, Colossian believers, and all other subsequent believers that would read this epistle to make certain that you do not lose sight of Christ. So the question has to be asked, how can we know that we can actually trust Jesus above and beyond all other things? Because what Paul is ultimately going to say is that really at the end of the day, the reason why that we can trust Jesus is because Paul will point to the cross and say, on the cross, what we see is what he did for us. To break that down a little bit further, what Paul is saying is that if you understand who Jesus is and what he's done, is that the only God who alone is worthy of all freedom, who has freedom, he is freedom, on the cross, he became bound. If you see Jesus, that the one who is only one, who's worthy of all respect, of all dignity, on and value, on the cross, suffered ultimate disrespect that jesus who had all power and the only one who's only worthy of all power relinquished that power on the cross and became powerless the one who alone has the name of all names meaning identity of all identities who's worthy of all praise on the cross lost that identity why so that you who are powerless who want power can be given power 
Not a power that you may be familiar with in this world, but power that Paul says is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that's now at work in you to give you a name. What type of name? Jesus said the name that is above all names I have, I've relinquished to give you a name so that rather than somehow being associated with a broken family, your name, your identity, some total of who you are will be identified with the eternal family. There will always be a spot at this table for you. This is what Jesus says, but Paul is declaring why Jesus is such a treasure to believe, to trust, to give yourself to him will give you life. To disbelieve, to turn away, is to ultimately lead to a fruit of all sorts of other types of sin. And they will look different in every one of us. And in every one of us, they will lead to the same types of brokenness, destruction, disintegration, and ultimately death. But you don't have to go that path. Because Jesus in Christ, or God in Christ, in Jesus, he himself was disintegrated on the cross. He himself went into exile so that we who are in exile because we deserve it can actually be given a name that we don't deserve. And the reason why simply boils down to this is that the gospel, if we believe this, it declares to us that I don't need to save myself. I don't need to be the one to defend myself, legitimize myself, to justify myself, to free myself, or in any other way because ultimately the verdict at the end of the day, that will be given to me, declared over me, because of this treasure that Paul says is Christ. is forgiven, accepted, reconciled, loved. That's the verdict. The things that we are all looking for, searching for, striving after, Paul says we have in Christ. We either believe that, and that will change the way that we live our lives, or we disbelieve that. And it will also change the way that we live our lives. One will lead to openness, freedom, giving, generosity, love, acceptance, people that are totally unlike us. The other will lead to alienation, division, brokenness, destruction, death. I want to invite you. The team's going to come on up. They're going to close us off in some songs of worship. I want to invite you to trust this Jesus. It's trustworthy. The concept of trust, the concept of giving your, your name, your life, your power, your authority, or what you think you may have over to anybody, let alone a God you can't see. It seems crazy, absurd, and strange. But we're dealing with a historical figure that we can look at. We can see that history has been changed. And to the degree that you see that God has done this for you, do you realize the type of person you will be is you'll be free? Because I'll tell you what, at the end of the day, here's the type of person you'll be. Rather than using people to get love, in other words, if you're just looking at other people around you, in other words, the friendships that you have in your life, if the reason why they're your friends in your life is because you have befriended them, because somehow you think in them you can find a name, an identity, or maybe they have the goods to help make you feel affirmed and good. Do you realize what you've done? You've taken that person who's just a person and you've turned them into the same profile who God is. At some point, they will let you down. But when you find your identity, your affirmation in God who has eternal source to give you everything you need, that person just becomes a person and you're free to love them without 
trying to get something from them. Do you realize money? Rather than money becoming a means to get a name for yourself, money becoming a means to get power for you, money be, rather than a means to somehow make your name great, money becomes just money. Money that God's given to you. Money that now you can then redistribute. Give to other people that are hurting, going through hard times. Give to the church. Give to suffering people. Because it's just money. You're in league with, you're in concert with the God who owns all of it. He can supply your needs. He can give you more. You lack, take care of you. It's the type of God we have. But if money is your God, if relationships are your God, if identity is your God, you're not free. You're still bound. You're still broken. Jesus wants to deliver you. We're going to sing. We're going to have some people off the side. They want to be able to be available to pray for you guys. So whatever is going on in your life, you just need prayer for anything. There's people are here. They want to pray for you. We have some rugs in the front. If you just get down on your knees before Jesus and worship him. We have communion in the back as a way of reminding ourselves in a very tangible way the fact that the broken bread is broken because that broken bread reminds you of the fact that Jesus himself was broken so that you and I who are broken could actually be made whole. So you can partake of communion as a family or take communion as a community group or as an aisle, a row. It doesn't matter. You can do it individually. That's fine. But the idea behind communion is we do it as a family. So maybe invite people. You don't even know. I don't even know you. Uh, Let's do communion together. You don't know me. I don't need to know you. But we have Jesus. Maybe we'll get to know each other. After we'll just go get some lunch. That's unity. Like, oh my gosh, people just love me and they don't even know my name. I don't even have the same skin color. They don't even know how much crap I've been through my life and yet they love me exactly that is a trailer of the gospel that is a declaration in action of the gospel God was in Christ reconciling sinner to himself we get to live that out I invite you into that Jesus thank you we want to respond to worship now
You guys, we're going to finish with another song. Why don't we all stand? If you're here and you have kids, really need you guys to maybe go get your kids. Try to make sure that kids are picked up at around uh, 1235. You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. Have communion, sing another song with us. But let's just, let's keep in a posture, a heart of just worship and affirmation, affirming the things that we sing. Believing them, trusting them. If it's something in your heart where you're just even having a hard time struggling to believe and how to believe, how to how this how the gospel works and how it's going to work its way into your, the rest of your life, you don't need to figure out all those answers. You're not. That's, that's what the whole Christian walk is all about. You will, as you grow and understand what the gospel is all about, begin to be changed by that. You're not going to get all the answers right now. For some of us, it's just we just need Jesus to bring healing, transformation. So let's sing this final song. If you're a parent, get your kids. Bring them back in if you'd like. It's fine. Let's sing. Let's just devote our hearts to Jesus and our song to Jesus and affirm his greatness and his power, okay? Let's do it.
God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have empowered us with to live out everything we've talked about. God, in ourselves, we are powerless. We're powerless to forgive. We're powerless to resist temptation, to fight back, to snap, to get angry. But by the gospel that we preach to ourselves and we need to have preached to us often, reminds us that even though Christ was mocked he closed his mouth for us so God I pray that the gospel would motivate and fuel and empower and strengthen us to live our lives as little trailers of the life that's to come I pray God that you would multiply these little trailers in little houses (laughs) all up and down the central coast, multiply community groups where this could happen. Multi-ethnic, multi-social economic level people can gather together and celebrate, break bread and worship and engage with one another. Jesus, we pray that you would continue to spread your church the way that you desire. Holy Spirit, enable us, help us to do this. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. We all agree together. Amen. God bless you guys. You guys have a great week. And listen, don't forget to sign up if you would like for the disciple training. Again, it's this Wednesday. Today's the last day to sign up for it. It's either.